welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got, as usual, my co-host, Darcy, with me. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, what's up? Nothing much. We are actually here today recording midweek, which we don't normally do. Um, We are going to record an update, a special update episode for y'all today, Um, going over some of the cases that we have recently talked about on the show and some updates that have happened with those. We always kind of like to follow up on any updates that we have with cases we're talking about on the show so that people can kind of get a feel for the get a sense and a feel that these episodes are not static. They don't just happen in a time capsule and then disappear. Many of these cases have ongoing legal action in them that continues to happen even after we talk about these cases. And it's really important for us to follow up on those and to bring any of the updates that we get to you listeners out there. Right, Darcy? Yeah. Um, I believe the first one that we have to start out with today is a Coronado update correct? Yeah. So if you recall back in our episode on the death of Rebecca Zahal, the Zahal family actually sued Adam Shatnai, who was the brother of Rebecca's boyfriend, Jonah. And he was found responsible in a civil court for Rebecca's death. Right. Right. And when we recorded that episode, that settlement was still being appealed And it actually has now been settled. Wow. That's pretty major. Yeah. So I believe the Zahal family was awarded $5 million. And they ended up settling for 600000 Which doesn't seem that much when you consider that it was originally $5 million. Additionally, you don't often get disclosure as far as what the settlement amount is. Usually they keep that mom- Yeah, it's pretty unusual to see an amount. Um, Usually they just say, you know, it has been settled for an undisclosed amount, whatever. So this is an article from NBCSanDiego.com. And this was actually back in February. So the insurance company that was handling Adam Shackney's legal expenses is actually who settled with the Zahal family attorney. And so it wasn't him. It wasn't. Jonah's brother, it was the insurance company. Right. And and this is actually the first time I've ever seen Adam Shacknai make a comment about the case. So he was outraged that the insurance company covering his legal exposure settled with a Zahal family attorney without his knowledge or involvement. And he told NBC7 that the settlement was for $600,000, which was the amount his lawyers told him. So he didn't actually see any paperwork talking about the, the settlement funds but so that's probably why it was we know the amount was because he actually said it as opposed to it being like a press release or anything so right he said that his insurance company believed in his innocence but was tired of throwing money at his legal defense and then he called the judge incompetent for allowing the settlement to be reached without any comments from himself or his attorney and then he also called the Zahal family attorney a sleazeball so he had a whole lot to say about this. And he says, it started out as just a family matter. You're cleared by law enforcement, he said, which, you know, is the whole thing that we talked about in the episode of San Diego Sheriff's Department ruling it a suicide from the very beginning, and they haven't changed their opinion at all in eight years. And then he continues on and says that then all of a sudden the civil court comes up and you're five miles behind and you're behind the eight ball because of not speaking out in the media beforehand, and that it was not easy to stay out of it. So just in summary for the listeners that aren't huge legal buffs, the burden of proof 
is much lower for a civil case than it is for a criminal case. For a criminal case, it is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is pretty much you have to erase all doubts that this person didn't do it in order to prove 100% that they did. The burden of proof for a civil case is more likely than not. So it's any 51% or right. above, if you can prove, then that person's golden. Right. And that's what happened in this case. They pursued the civil action because they could not get any kind of investigation or case going criminally. Right. And my understanding is that the Zahal family actually went ahead and decided to bring the civil case because they were hoping that if they were able to find Adam Shacknai civilly responsible, that that would then spur the San Diego Sheriff's, Sheriff's Department to open up a criminal investigation. And that, of course, has not happened. So the Zahal family attorney, you know, made a statement saying that the dismissal of the civil case does not negate, negate the jury's finding that Adam Shacknai was responsible for Rebecca Zahal's death. And that puts to rest the civil case. The jury verdict that came out finding Adam Shacknai guilty of murdering Rebecca Zahal in civil court still stands and that the family will next ask the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office to change its determination in the case from suicide to homicide and that if the medical examiner will not change the opinion, then the family will bring the matter into court and have a judge look at it. So I did just do a double check to see if there's anything more recent. It doesn't appear that there is. Mm -hmm. It just appears that the San Diego Sheriff's Department is still unwilling to even reopen this investigation. Right. And that they are convinced that this is still a suicide. Well, the wheels of justice tend to turn very, very, very slowly. So mm -hmm. hopefully this is not necessarily a sign that it will never be reopened, but it's just working its way very slowly through the system, perhaps. One right. And hope. I also saw that the Zahal family, I believe, took $100,000 of that $600,000 settlement. And they are calling for anybody who has any information to come forward to prove that Adam Shacknight did, in fact, murder Rebecca Zahal, and they have offered up a $100,000 reward. I think they should at least get their day in court. What do you think? At the very least, let's, let's get rid of any doubt that this was a homicide, right? I mean, in my opinion, it's so clearly a homicide, but, but I think that you're right. I think they should at least try it in a court and, and let the chips fall where they may, if you will. Unfortunately, though, the family doesn't get to make that decision. It right. is the DA that makes that decision um, for them. Right. And in this instance, the DA is refusing to move forward with the charges on this. But, you know, occasionally you have cases where the DA changes and somebody else comes into office because I believe it's an elected position. Yeah, it does. And then that person has a difference in opinion and they will move forward with the case when a previous DA refused. So, um Maybe and, that's what will happen in this case. Right. And in, and in some cases, like we talked about the Jennings 8, they had a new district attorney come in running specifically on a promise to reopen the investigation and find whoever is in charge. And then, of course, nothing has happened with that case. But it could be one of those where another district attorney runs for office, you know, and this is one of his campaign promises is to reopen this investigation. So we'll see. We can hope. Yeah. Unfortunately... This, to me, I think sort of reeks of sort of a little bit of a racist turn to it. And I hate to play that card, but it seems as though this was an Asian woman with a very traditional Asian family. And I feel like she got dropped through the cracks for that reason. That if this was a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes or whatever, a pretty white woman, then they would have been more than happy to move forward with a case like this. It's just... 
disgusting. Yeah, and I don't know if it's that or if it's that the Shackney family has a lot of money, you know, that money buys justice, if you will. Um, I definitely think there's something hinky, you know. There's definitely a combination of those factors, I believe. Right, right. Uh, the next update that we have for you guys is on the Mackenzie Luke case. And we brought this to you guys a little bit ago about this Utah college student who was in a nursing program who was meeting with someone in a park after she got back from a flight to Utah. And this man, Ayula Ajaje or Ajaji, sort of grabbed her at the park and ended up killing her and burning her body and then dropping her off in a canyon. And he is currently facing those charges still. I do not believe he has been to court for those charges. But there have been updates in this case because Mackenzie's accused killer is now facing a number of new charges. One of the articles was from USA Today, and it was an update on his case. Uh, suspect in Utah student Mackenzie Luke's death is charged with a second case, which is very, very interesting to me because I kind of had a feeling right from the beginning of this case that this was not his only victim. Did you kind of have that feeling? Well, it definitely seemed like he did it before, but I didn't. I don't think I realized he's already been charged with another murder. The case or excuse me, the article says the man suspected of killing University of Utah student Mackenzie Luke was charged Tuesday with the sexual abuse and kidnapping of another woman. So he did not get charged with a murder of her. But when I say that he's done this before, he's done similar things like kidnapping I and see. rape and, and, and those sort of things. Aggressive sexual crimes, which right. it appears that he was also charged with murder in the Mackenzie Luke case. But I feel like people like this have a long history. It is usually not one crime that they are accused of that they get tried for. I feel like there's typically a lot of stuff going on, and that is the case with this man. He was charged with sexual abuse and kidnapping of another woman. He is accused of assaulting a woman he met on a dating app in March of 2018 at his home. Olivia Sanchez wrote this article. Sorry, I want to credit my sources here. USA Today, and this was actually, this came out August 20th of this month. He was charged with the murder and kidnapping of Luke the summer after authority just discovered her body in Logan Canyon outside Salt Lake City, just as a recap. But they learned about this other crime that happened in March 2018 as part of the ongoing investigation of the man that killed her. So Luke disappeared after she returned to Salt Lake City from a trip to her Southern California hometown for the funeral of her grandmother. She texted her parents that she had landed safely in order to lift to a local park. Her Lyft driver told police she was meeting someone in a parked car, and police used cell phone GPS location data to put her and Ajaji at Hatch Park within one minute of each other around 3 a.m. Luke's official cause of death was blunt force trauma to the left side of her head, and they found her DNA in a burn pit in his backyard while executing a search warrant. They do not know even today, how the two were connected and what the motive was for the killing, but court documents show that social media and dating sites were linked the, between the two. Hmm. The new charging documents show that Ajay met a woman on an unnamed dating app last year. She went to his house and had dinner with him. The sexual abuse occurred after dinner while they were watching television, the documents say. The investigation into Luke's death also led officials to charge him with 19 counts of sexual exploitation of a minor after investigators discovered child porn on his computer. So oh, wow. he has new sexual assault charges and child pornography charges, which is pretty disgusting. 
He has not entered any pleas to any of these charges yet and has made no comment. He was an information technology worker who had stints with high-profile companies and was briefly in the Army National Guard. Just, this is disgusting. Like, who the fuck does this? Like, this guy is super creepy. Yeah. First of all, you meet some guy in a dating app and you go right to his house and have a meal with him? Like, it doesn't say whether they had gone out previous to this, but that's kind of creepy. I mean, I have had guys ask me if, like, I want to come over that night or that same night, like, I first meet them or whatever. I never do it, but I don't think it's that unusual for people to ask. But to go to some guy's house, and it doesn't say, granted, I don't want to victim blame or anything like that, but it doesn't say, I mean, they could have been dating for a while. Yeah, I don't know. But evidently, he assaulted her as they were sitting on the couch watching TV it does not say whether he raped her or whether, you know, what exactly happened in that particular case. I'm sure that because we've still got charges outstanding in this, that they probably won't be making many comments until they take these to trial. Right. But clearly this guy that committed the crime against L- Mackenzie Luke is a sleazebag. Yeah. He's got a whole shit ton of child porn on his computer and he's got a long history of domestic violence, assault and sexual type crimes. He is a true sexual deviant who was a powder keg waiting to explode. Yeah, and it sounds like, it definitely sounds like the murder of Mackenzie was an escalation, that there was behavior, and perhaps that he has other, you know, it sounds like he definitely has other assaults in his past, and it's the typical, it could be the typical escalation of no longer wanting a victim to be able to escape, you know? I wondered if he started out with the child porn and then sort of worked his way up to the dating apps with the younger women and then from there into the violence and then from there into the murder. Yeah. What do you think? That's definitely possible. Or do you think they all kind of happened? Maybe they all happened simultaneously. Maybe this stuff was. I just I wonder about these sorts of things, if those all go hand in hand or if it's a natural progression of events that starts with one thing and just you need more and more. Yeah to get you sexually excited. And he clearly got excited by exerting sort of a power maneuver over women and children. Yeah. I kind of think it might be like an escalation. One thing no longer stimulates him. And you know, if that's just the visual aspect of images on your computer and then it is actually needing to control a woman with the assault and then that no longer, you know, satisfies him. And I kind of think it might be that, but who honestly, who knows? Well, I got to tell you, this other woman is lucky to have escaped with her life. Yeah. Clearly very disturbing. Not a nice gentleman there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The next update that we have is with the Epstein Bikini Atoll episode. We actually have a couple of different updates with that. Um, Why don't you offer up the one that you, the update that you had for that particular episode? Yeah, so I really wanted to find this because, like I said on the the show in the past, I just read Wikipedia all the time, and sometimes I end up forgetting where exactly I read something, and I know I read it, and that was also the episode that we talked about plagiarism. And so I didn't want to just say something without being able to cite it, so I didn't say it then, and I went back and found the source for it that night. So when... The U.S. detonated the bombs in the Marshall Islands. They did evacuate the residents of Bikini Atoll prior to any nuclear weapons testing in 1946. 
1954, the United States detonated a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb. This was part of the Castle Bravo test. And they didn't realize how far the fallout would reach. And so what ended up happening is the fallout and the radiation reached this other atoll called Ronjalap. And there were all kinds of radiation illnesses at Ronjalap Atoll, and the U.S. ended up having to evacuate that atoll in 1954. And in 1957, the displaced inhabitants of the Ronjalap Atoll had been repeatedly requesting permission to return home. And the Atomic Energy Commission, which is a, which was a commission that was set up by the United States government to study atomic energy, basically, in 1954, the Atomic Energy Commission declared Ronjalap safe for rehabilitation. And the report, I'm getting this from the Bulletin of the Atomic Sciences, the Atomic Energy Commission report said that even though the radioactive contamination of Ronjalap Island is considered perfectly safe for human habitation, the levels of activity are higher than those found in other inhabited locations in the world. The habitation of these people on the island will afford most valuable ecological radiation data on human beings. So basically they said, we think this level is low enough for people to live there but it's still higher than anywhere else in the world. But what we're going to do is we're going to let them go back home and then we're going to study the effects of radiation on these oh people God. that were going back home. So we're just basically using them as human guinea pigs. That's exactly what happened. And within five years, you started seeing the effects of radiation illnesses. You had miscarriages, you had stillbirths, you had thyroid cancers. It was just, it was... It was awful, and basically the United States came up with a settlement, offered them a settlement, but it was, I think, $120 million, and obviously that money has is running out, and they're continuing to have fallout from the radiation, and basically the government has said, look, we paid our dues, so we don't owe you anything else, so you're on your own at this point. Oh, geez. And it's super fucked up. So just wanted to add that in there because it's just the conversation that we had about this originally was kind of like a lighthearted thing because it was about the Manhattan Project Beer Company and Bikini Atoll and, you know, the beer, all of that. But what we did there was very significant. And, you know, I was thinking about this and, like, I think the people of Texas would be pretty pissed if I decided to come up with a beer and name it Dealey Plaza. Right. You know? So it's just, it's completely inconsiderate and insensitive. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that in there because it was shocking that I read that and they just didn't care. Yeah. Um, I don't know that the beer company doesn't care per se. I just don't think they thought about it and they didn't plan it out properly and they didn't really consider that somebody might be upset about it. Well, no, I meant that the United States didn't care that when, when we sent them back. Right. Yeah. Right. But what I'm saying is the beer company is it's offensive and, you know, we're all acknowledging that. But I don't necessarily think what they did was a blatant sort of finger on the, you know, middle finger to those people. It was just a very ignorant, unthinking thing to do. So, yeah, it was inconsiderate. And then the last update that we have for today is about Jeffrey Epstein. So I know that we had had a conversation about him committing suicide and about the number of civil cases that are currently in the system 
making their way through the courts in order to sue Jeffrey Epstein's estate for the sexual assaults that a lot of these young girls suffered from. And unfortunately, I think that before he passed away, he did he took a couple actions uh, that were deliberate. And this particular article is from the Associated Press. Kurt Anderson wrote the article. It actually came out August 21st. But the article itself is called Epstein May Have Gamed the System from Beyond the Grave. So the the will that Jeffrey Epstein signed just two days before his jailhouse suicide put more than $577 million in assets into a trust fund that could make it more difficult for his dozens of accusers to collect damages. First of all, I didn't know he was worth $577 million. Yeah, I heard that. He had nearly $600 million in assets. It was a shit ton of money for someone who clearly didn't look like they were doing much in the way of working. Mm-hmm. In any case, estate lawyers and other experts say prying open the trust and dividing up the financiers' riches is not going to be easy and could take years. This is the last act of Epstein's manipulation of the system, even in death, says attorney Jennifer Freeman, who represents child sex abuse victims that are now accusing him. Epstein, 66, killed himself August 10th in New York while awaiting trial on federal sex trafficking charges. The discovery of the will and its newly created 1953 trust named after the year of his birth instantly raised suspicions that he did it to hide money from the women who say he sexually abused them when they were teenagers. Right. Essentially, by putting his fortune in a trust, he is now shrouded from public view. The identities of the beneficiaries, whether they be individuals, organizations or other entities, and for the women trying to collect from his estate... The first order of business will need to be persuading a judge to pierce that veil to release the details. Hmm. So when you have a trust, it basically sort of blocks anyone from getting money from the estate unless they can provide compelling proof to persuade a judge to break apart that protection of the trust and the trustees that are working with it to release the money. It's just an extra layer of protection for people and their money. And it can take a long time to pierce that veil and to get through into those funds. And just let me finish this article here. The women will have to pursue this course, even if Epstein had not created a trust, but they have to convince the judge that they are entitled to compensation as victims of sex crimes. The judge would then have to decide how much each of them should get and whether to reduce the amounts given to Epstein's named beneficiaries who would also be given their say in court. Wealthy people typically attempt to hide assets in trusts or other legal schemes. I believe the court and his administrators will want to do right by Epstein's victims, and if not, we will fight for the justice that is long overdue to them, says attorney Lisa Bloom, who represents several of Epstein's accusers. She said attorneys for the women will go after Epstein's estate in the U.S. Virgin Islands where the will was filed and where he owned two islands. So he didn't just own one island. He owned freaking two. Yeah, he owned like Little St. James and Big St. James Island. But Lisa Bloom, the attorney who represents some of these victims, says that this is gross negligence on the part of Epstein's lawyers because they allowed him to sign a new will given that he had apparently attempted suicide a short time before signing that new will. And that's supposed to be a huge red flag. Yeah. Um, It is a classic sign of impending suicide for a prisoner, says this attorney. Um, The attorneys who handled the will have not returned any any, um, calls for comments. 
The assets listed on the 20-page will include more than $56 million in cash, properties in New York, Florida, Paris, New Mexico, and the Virgin Islands, $18.5 million in vehicles, aircraft, and boats, art and collectibles that will have to be appraised. Typically, in any case, trust or not, there's a pecking order of entities that line up to get their share of the estate, says a law professor at the University of Miami. First in line is always the government. Yeah. In Epstein's case, it's going to be multiple governments because he had taxes owed on property and estates in several different countries. Next in line in that pecking order is any creditor to whom Epstein owed money, like a bank or mortgage company. And then lawsuits against the estate by victims come into play somewhere after the mortgage companies and banks. Epstein's only known relative was one brother named Mark, who has not responded to any requests for comments either. Surprise, surprise. And it is also unclear as to whether the brother was actually named as a beneficiary in the will. Yeah, I have heard, though, that the brother is named as one of the property owners of like a building or a unit in New York where I believe Epstein had like a business address or something. So they, they were in like right. communication or like they had, they did have a relationship. I just, I don't, it's not clear what it was right. exactly. But it's unclear as to whether he was in the will or not, just because he's got his name on properties doesn't necessarily mean he's a named beneficiary in the will. Right. But it's not like he, they're estranged. Right. But other people within this scenario say the U S government could actually, and quite possibly will seek civil forfeiture of Epstein's properties or other assets because they were used for criminal purposes, as in sexual trafficking and all that. Government lawyers would have to produce strong evidence in a trial-like proceeding to show that, though. And if they prevailed, they would be able to seize the properties, sell them, and distribute the proceeds to the victims of these civil cases. Yeah. And then many people are saying the will shouldn't stop them. But federal prosecutors declined to comment about the forfeiture actions currently going on in this Epstein case. But it's kind of a slap in the face to those victims. It's like, you know, middle finger. But not at all surprising that he did that. No. You know. But it is it it seems very shady on the part of the attorneys, given that he had committed attempted to commit suicide earlier. And then there that supposedly According to attorneys that do this sort of thing, that's a classic sign that someone's about to do some bad shit. Yeah, that's a really good point that that attorney made, that it's negligence on behalf of the attorneys to let him sign a new will and create this, you know, a couple weeks after a suicide attempt. And, I mean, it also, I think it does kind of put to rest the whole debate over whether or not he actually did commit suicide versus whether or not he was killed. Right. I think that pretty much clears it up, that, that... He clearly two days ahead of time was preparing to do something. Right. And then I also think it kind of smacks of him knowing he was guilty as fuck. Mm hmm. Because. And it sounds like, I mean, from everything that's in the public sector, it sounds like there's there is compelling evidence to where they could bring forth a, a suit to, you know, bust this trust open. Because, I mean, yeah, it does protect your money, but it's not impenetrable. Right. Like it can't like that's the whole nature of the the like law, right? Is like, there's nothing that can like absolutely protect your money no matter what. Right. But it it just adds a whole level of complication to get that money. And including, it could take years to penetrate that trust versus, you know, a year or two to get it normally. You know what I'm saying? It doubles or triples the time that it takes those victims to get that money. And some of them desperately need that for counseling and for um, different things to survive if they're damaged in a, in a certain way by this individual. Right. 
I guess I kind of see it as similar to the the Adam Shack Nightmare because the Hal thing just that that you can get a you know a a court to hold somebody liable and then work out the money afterward, but you you still have the justice of a court saying yes they are liable for the damages done to you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not the same. Like, but I also. You know, I don't think there's any of the, the victims that are doing this for the money. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Just another nasty part of the whole Epstein scenario. And the things money can buy. Okay. So we have a couple of emails to go over on the show today. We Our listeners seem to have jumped on this bandwagon Yay. lately. And I'm very grateful for that. Because it just really shows that we're, people are, listeners are engaging with us and, and want to know stuff and want to talk to us. And I think that's awesome. I have an email that I got about a week and a half, two weeks ago. It says, hi, guys, big fan here. Two questions. Can you please do a podcast where you talk about some of the older cases like Albert Fish, Lindsay Borden? Oh, Albert Fish. That's all you. That is a genre. <laughs> uh, that is a genre I like best. And I would love to hear your take on some of the more interesting cases that are older. Some like vintage cases, cool. they said. I have no problem with that. I love those older cases. We are kind of saving some of those as special yeah. <laughs> treasures for sure. But we're definitely planning on diving into those at some point. Those tend to be a little bit more complicated and sometimes take a little bit more research because many of them don't have super Wikipedia pages like we have with some of the more recent killers like Ted Bundy. and Either that or there is a ton of information and everybody knows everything. So you want to make sure you don't fuck anything up, too. There's a lot of pressure with the big, the right. big heavy hitters. So we, we, we definitely have to think of some new ways to kind of cover off on yeah. some of the facts on these cases to make it new and interesting for our listeners. And then the second question that they had is any plans to attend or hold events in person like meetups? I know that there are a number of other podcasts that do kind of do meetups and things like that. I don't think that we necessarily have any plans to do that anytime soon because of the fact that Darcy and I live on different sides <laughs> of the country, which makes it a little bit more complex. A little I'm working bit on to it. Those, some of, the, some of those trying things. to get back out there. Um, however, that being said, I definitely would like to attend some conventions and participate in crime con and some of those other things that a lot of people are so excited about every year. Yeah. Down for that for sure. It says wishing you continued success, Casey. Thanks Casey. Thank you, Casey. That was awesome. Love it. Love it. Love it. The next one is about two weeks ago. We got this one. It says I came across your podcast accidentally while I was in bed sick last week. It is so refreshing to hear two intelligent women talk about true crime. Yay! So many other podcasts are so surface and, quite frankly, ridiculous in their coverage of crime. You two are respectful, intelligent, and clearly know what you're doing. Thanks so much for your wonderful podcast. Keep up the good work, Sandy. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, Sandy. That is so sweet. That was so I nice. I love it, love it, love it. That always gives you the warm fuzzies when people actually appreciate yeah. you um, and say that you're doing a good job. Everybody wants to hear that they're doing a good job. And and that's what we're trying to do. We we know we have different perspectives coming into these than, than a couple other shows. And, you know, while we do, uh, we make each other laugh. I don't know if we make anybody else laugh. But, right. we're you know, we're always still trying to maintain an intelligent intellectual conversation and also be respectful of everybody. Yes. Um, so we appreciate that, that you that you think that as well. And it's a delicate balance that we're still kind of learning as we go. By, by no means are we saying we are perfect. By no means are we ever saying that we're better than any other podcast out there. 
but we try to be ourselves. We try to be unique and we try to be respectful in the coverage that we do provide on certain cases. And we enjoy what we do. We're really having a very, very good time talking about these cases. As weird as that sounds, as creepy as it sounds that we're like, yay, murder is so cool. Yeah. Murder well, is we're basically cool, just but. having the recording the conversations that we used to have when we were playing volleyball together. Right. So we, we want to make it clear murder is not cool, but the research behind it, the legal teams, the forensics, all of that kind of stuff is just what blows our minds that it's yeah gotten to the point where it's at and that people are so interested in that as a, a genre. This is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our fun little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We love your emails. We are at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We will throw that into the show notes as well. Social media plug, Darcy? We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So go find us and give us a follow. Follow, like our pictures. And we're posting more pictures of uh, my dog, who is our mascot, Dahlia. (laughs) Slide into our DMs. We're okay with that, too. Yeah, Yeah, I posted a couple of them last night of Darcy, who's Miss Elusive lady who doesn't let me post any pictures of her and would (laughs) refuse to provide any pictures of herself. She had to have the dog in there. It's not that I refuse. It's that I truly don't take pictures of myself. I just, I just don't. I, I never do. Never have. Well, I think the listeners kind of want to see what we look like at some point. As weird as that sounds, I don't. I don't think they're crushing on us or anything like that. But listeners kind of like to see. I mean, I know when I look at other podcasts and listen to other podcasts, I go look at their stuff because I want to see what they look like and put a voice, a picture with a voice. Yeah, and I judge a little bit. Uh, just a scotch. <laughs> See, that's why I don't take pictures of myself. That right there. I definitely judge you more than any of anyone else, though, Darcy. I believe that. I do, too. That's all right. Anyway, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>